I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. Our season-long theme, The Summer of Canon, continues to roll on, and this week, the LSCE screens the 1987 action figure-inspired offering, Masters of the Universe. Join us! I was a typical 80s kid back in the day which meant one of my early memories was being obsessed with He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I watched the cartoon religiously. I had the toys. I had vehicles. I had play sets. I literally had the slime pit where you could torture denizens of Eternia while they were strapped to a wall. Although, I will say this, something I always wanted but never got, I wanted Snake Mountain. I know, I know, the proper answer should be, I wanted Castle Grayskull, but come on, Snake Mountain as a playset, it came with that microphone voice enhancer that let you make the mountain's evil face talk, and that always struck me as being so cool. Still, all in all, good times, right? So, you've already heard me wax nostalgic about my youth and my adventures with my childhood friends twin brothers john and mike so that being said what's one more story in my best imitation of sophia petrillo from the golden girls picture it it's the fall of 1989 and i've been invited to yet another sleepover at my friend's place and once again Three boys, now collectively aged seven, are seated on a couch, again, each holding a dish of ice cream, and 
this is all post an evening spent at Chuck E. Cheese, so it's already a happy memory to boot. But now we get to sit down and watch an evening of cinematic entertainment. And what do we have on deck? Masters of the Universe. John and Mike have each already seen it, but they are pumped to see it again, knowing that this was going to be a new experience for me. We sit, we watch, we take in the great spectacle that it is, and we are in awe. After all, we've all been watching He-Man cartoons since we could walk and talk, and now they've gone and created something that is both amazing and fun like this. Hot debates would end up raging throughout the night. Gwildor, was he cool? But hey, why couldn't we get Orko involved here? Why? Sorod, who is clearly the coolest of the hunters, why was he killed first? And, lest one think that prepubescent boys don't pay attention, I have to tell you, there was great debate that would rage the entire evening as to whether or not Evil Lynn was clearly the most attractive lady on the big screen, only to have the opposite argument be made for Tila showing up there. And while yes, it was a cherished memory of a good time with childhood friends, one may as well have sealed it all up inside of a time capsule, because as fate would have it, I would suddenly stop thinking about Masters of the Universe for nigh almost 20 years after that. Don't get me wrong, I didn't hate any of it. I wasn't avoiding it. It just became something that never came up. And I didn't interact with anybody who thought it was also fun, cool, interesting. So, as things do, it just sort of faded back into those murky, distant memories that would occasionally burble up now and again without any real consequence. That is until, in the mid-aughts, when I had first moved into a condo with my wife, and the cable service that we paid for had offered up a fun selection of on-demand movies, and Masters of the Universe was highlighted under the cult classic category. And for once, in a rare turn of events, she mentioned to me, Oh, I've never seen that. And my head exploded. I was beside myself. So naturally, we had to sit down and watch it together. And in a rather strange turn, she actually enjoyed the campy offering for what it was supposed to be. And as luck would have it, I ended up falling in love all over again with a little bit of nostalgia from what I felt was a simpler time. But truthfully, if you're going to understand my love of Masters of the Universe as a film, you're going to have to first understand how canon came along and tried to make it their last best hope to get their coffers full from 1987. And we also need to understand just exactly how He-Man even came about to begin with. So, if you want to understand the power of He-Man, we first need to talk about a little guy who I'm sure you've never heard of. George Lucas. I know, I can hear that collective. What? But it's true. In 1976, George Lucas was shopping around for a distributor for toys that he wanted to have made for his new forthcoming space film that he really thought was going to be big with kids. And what he was doing was trying to ramp up for a spring release for the film. So he wanted to have something that would get going before Christmas. At the time, 
the toy company Mattel was already having great success with products like Barbie, Big Jim, and G.I. Joe. They ended up passing on Lucas's space toys, assuming that his timeline was ridiculous. And that allowed an upstart little company called Kenner to step in and essentially sell what amounted to be vaporware to children. Vouchers for action figures that would become the Star Wars toy line. Mattel, at the time, mocked their junior rival for their brazen promise and joked it was a complete ripoff. After all, you were selling complete sets of toys that didn't exist that would show up in May? What? Why would you do that? But then, May of 1977 rolled around, and Star Wars dropped melting the minds of viewers across the country, and suddenly, all of those kids who had those complete toy sets that were bought back in December, they were the cool trendsetters, and millions of dollars would end up flowing from Kenner's decision to back Lucas and his vision, creating now a deep-seated need over at Mattel to come up with a rather killer idea of their own. The problem, though, was now they wanted a guaranteed IP license to try to craft toys for. And you know, it's not exactly easy to predict how films are going to be received. Case in point, Mattel made toys for 1981's film Clash of the Titans, and well, they were honestly just kind of meh toys, except for the Kraken. The Kraken was badass. but. That being said, the toys for Clash of the Titans initially sold well, at least until the film came out. And after that, nobody was buying them. Mattel ended up approaching this problem like it was just another market research issue, and they boiled it down to trying to figure out what were the most popular genres of action figure toys for boys. And in reality, it became three big categories. Space toys, military toys, and barbarians. Star Wars initially had a lock on space toys, so that was almost immediately out. Mattel was not going to try to go head to head with them. Military toys, they sold well, but Mattel was already making G.I. Joe, so there was no need to try to compete with themselves to make yet another military soldier toy. But for that third genre, barbarians, that was something they could get on board with. Channeling their inner love of the art of Frank Frazetta, go back and see our episode on Fire and Ice, the creative team ended up coming up with some rather rippling specimens, all kitted out with axes and swords. They ended up partnering with Dino De Laurentiis and Universal Pictures, who were trying to get a big screen adaptation of Robert E. Howard's classic character Conan the Barbarian up on the big screen. And that was in the works with Arnold Schwarzenegger, scheduled to be slated to star as the rugged Cimmerian warrior. Toys were created with muscles on top of muscles. Truly, it was a bodybuilder's fantasy. Or, at least, Oscar Wilde's. A problem, though, quickly developed. That's when Mattel learned that the film was going to be an R-rated feature. Full of violence, sprinkled with a little bit of sex, and definitely not designed for children. Well, at least not the cool ones. I wonder if somebody could have seen this coming. I mean, especially, you know, if you had read the initial screenplay that was drafted by Oliver Stone, or read the follow-up screenplay that they would use by the director, John Milius. It just seemed like, I don't know, someone could have predicted this. 
good. But what is best in life? The open step. Free thoughts. Falcons at your wrist. And the wind in your hair. Wrong! Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of your women. That is good. That is good. Now, it would only be a scant few years after this when this sort of thing would not be considered an impediment to making toys for children that was based on adult IP. I mean, in reality, I can recall toys for Robocop, Aliens, Rambo, The Toxic Avenger. All of those were very adult films, but children bought the toys to them. But at this time, at this moment, Mattel was deciding they had to take a moral stand. So they ended up breaking their contract with both Universal, and they backed away from Conan. Like, sort of a cat on a diving board. And yet, here they were, still with all these mock-ups for these, well, barbarian toys. They have all this research and development on hand. Why not use it to still create a world? A world that had heroes and villains that would be separate from any sort of intellectual property that was licensed. Still, using their Frank Frazetta-inspired art, they could weave in elements of fantasy and science fiction as well. And thus, the Conan body had a facial retooling, and brown hair was swapped for blonde, and a placeholder name was given, at least until they could come up with something better. He-Man. They market-tested the shit out of all of this. They brought in kids to play with the figures, they got their opinions, and they ended up expanding their pantheon of heroes and villains across this new realm that they called Eternia. The forces of darkness would be led by the evil Skeletor, a super-ripped, skeletal-faced man who was trying to get control over the magical seat of power, which was known as Castle Greyskull. Names were, well, quite literal. Merman, Beastman, He-Man. I mean, on one hand, it was seemingly lame, but on the other hand, it actually worked really well for both the comic book crowd and, what's more, for little kids who could wrap their minds around such a simplistic concept. A couple of vehicles were designed, some playsets were created, but they needed something more. Hey, perhaps a mount to ride? By the power of You see, He-Man was the alter ego of the kindly Prince Adam, and he would invoke the power of Castle Greyskull, of course, under the guidance of the good sorceress. And that's when he would transform into the muscle-bound warrior, He-Man. And, of course, his cat, Cringer, would equally transform into the ferocious mount, Battle Cat. Oh, about that, though. Battle Cat? What they did was they ended up repurposing a slew of old tire toys that really didn't sell well from the big gym action figure line. 
and what they ended up doing was creating saddles for them and as well as armor to allow their chunky figures to ride them. And thus, He-Man had Battle Cat to ride on, and Skeletor would cruise around on what would become Panthor. You know, like you do. They still needed a hook, though. It couldn't just be He-Man, because everyone seemingly wanted to capture the mystical power that was emanating from Eternia. So, a natural name that came to mind was something akin to He-Man and the Lords of Power. But that got shot down. Mattel was worried that a bunch of uptight Christians would take offense to the use of the word lords, so it suddenly became dumbed down a little bit more and it became He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, officially created. There was a problem though. Yeah, they did have some cool art. They had figures, they had vehicles, they had playsets, but there was no real story here. What was going to hold all of this together? Whose bright idea was it? to include a mini-comic with every figure sold? That would end up building the world of Masters of the Universe one character at a time? Wow! That seems actually needlessly complex. But great, you're bringing in more artists, but you still don't know how you can transfer that mass appeal that was so needed to get these figures to sell. Eventually, Mattel wanted to create what would become a half-hour infomercial that would introduce their new toys to the market for Christmas of 1982. So they went to Filmation Studios to create a cartoon segment to help sell the concept that would become Masters of the Universe. They ended up creating a pitch that was so good that Filmation offered to ramp up and make a full series, which further cemented the characters with Children of the Day. Masters of the Universe sold like hotcakes when they hit the shelves in 1982. Seeing the cartoon series follow in 1983, they experienced exponential growth. It was reported that at the height of its popularity, the show was on more than 100 U.S. television stations. It, it was UHF. It was different back in the day, kids. And it was airing on over 30 countries worldwide. Between 1986 and 1987, Masters of the Universe outsold Barbie as a product line. Mattel had a solid lock on action figures for boys, so much so that they decided to play their hand and try to create an equally best-selling line for girls, creating He-Man's sister, She-Ra, Princess of Power, who would make her debut in 1985, teaming up with her brother on multiple occasions to have the cartoon series action line of her own. There was a problem, though. Masters of the Universe had expanded so quickly, so fast, that they couldn't get new figures out fast enough. They began to reuse molds and designs to save steps. Sometimes they would simply end up repainting figures and sell them again, trying to pass them off as new characters. For example, a reskinned Beast Man was painted green and he was sold as Moss Man. And that did not endear Mattel to consumers. Needing a change and needing one fast, Mattel thought that they could create a film for their franchise, going the same route as Transformers and G.I. Joe had before them. But this time, they would do so with live action, no longer have a big screen cartoon, a gamble that was made to inject new life into the characters that were starting to wane.
Initially, Mattel had first contracted with Edward R. Pressman, a film producer who had worked with them on securing and then later helped them extract themselves from working on Conan the Barbarian. Pressman had a long career in Hollywood. He had made his bones producing low-budget but critically acclaimed cult films, things like Sisters, Badlands, and Phantom of the Paradise, before he moved on to bigger and better productions like The Hand, Conan the Barbarian, and Das Boot. He had Mattel's permission to shop around the new Masters of the Universe film, and people were starting to take notice in Hollywood. People like Gary Goddard. Now, full disclosure, I'm talking about things as if I'm setting them in the past right now. This was long, long before various allegations had surfaced about Goddard being a sexual predator. So for the purpose of this episode, I'm just going to stay the course and talk about the film properly. And I think it's pretty universal to say, yeah, the man had some problems and he had some large skeletons in his closet. But all that being said, Goddard had made a name for himself as a Disney Imagineer, designing interactive stage shows where he created the Conan Live Show for Universal. And that's when he got word that Masters of the Universe project was being pitched, so he decided to go and bring himself to Pressman, and using his own company, Gary Goddard Productions, he made the play to take over Masters of the Universe for himself. Pressman liked the cut of his jib and hired him to be the director on the film. But they needed a script, so they went to David O'Dell, one of the original writers on the Jim Henson Muppet Show, who had also gone on to write a script for The Dark Crystal. To keep production costs down, both Goddard and Odell agreed that they needed to stage the Masters of the Universe film, at least for a chunk of its action, on modern-day 1980s Earth. So they figured this would allow them to have some sort of fresh-faced American teens show up on screen, do their thing, and they could just show Eternia at the beginning at the end of the film and save some money in the process. Perfect. Now... All you need to do is get yourself He-Man. Enter Dolph Lundgren, 6'5", bodybuilding, Swedish chemical engineering student who was working at the time on a Fulbright scholarship to get his doctorate at MIT. Oh, that and he happened to have just a little bit of a side hustle, earning money being the bodyguard and boyfriend of singer Grace Jones back in the day. And that's when he got himself noticed and cast in the James Bond film, 1985's View to a Kill. That's when Sylvester Stallone saw him and decided he wanted to cast him to play his boxing opponent, the Russian Ivan Drago, for the film Rocky IV. He was, at least on paper, perfect in the role of He-Man, although at the time, he wasn't very good at speaking English. Still, with a director secured, a script ready to shoot, and a signed star to lead, all Pressman had to do was find a studio that was willing to back him. And that's where the desperate Go-Go Boys come along. While other studios were willing to walk around, kick the tires a bit, and, you know, inspect the product, Canon ended up diving headlong into acquiring the rights to make Masters of the Universe theirs, desperate to get a hit. 
Had the Go-Go Boys known that the franchise was experiencing the same decline that they themselves were, they probably would have passed on the purchase. Of course, though, they needed to round out with some more cast members. Frank Langella, thespian of stage and renowned player of such films as 1970's Diary of a Mad Housewife and 1979's Dracula, was cast to play the embodiment of evil here, Skeletor. Langella would go on to say that he never hesitated when it came to taking the role because his son was obsessed with Masters of the Universe and he thought what could be cooler than playing a great villain that would impress his kids. The Go-Go Boys, though, were not happy with the casting. They thought Langella would cost them too much. After all, it's just a guy in a skull mask. Why would you bother paying some well-known Broadway actor when you can get a known name to come in? Goddard pushed back and ended up winning the argument, claiming that, well, you do. You need a really good actor to help emote, especially underneath all of those prosthetics. And with all the costuming they were putting on him, they needed somebody that could do this. For his part, Langella was actually rather disappointed that he didn't get to rock the same costume that Skeletor had in the cartoons, because back in the day he was working out a lot, and at the time he wanted to show off his whole swole look for the camera. One of the most iconic women of cult films from the 1980s, Meg Foster, was brought in to play Evil Lynn, Skeletor's devotee and right hand when it came to conquering the known universe. Shockingly, as a woman who is known for her piercing blue eyes, Cannon had originally wanted her to wear contacts. But honestly, that's not what you hire Meg Foster for. You show those baby blues. Foster, for her part, enjoyed working on the set, but was actually disappointed that her long hair was cut down for the role. Great character actor Billy Barty was brought in to play a newly drafted character of Gwildor, a science-loving locksmith who ended up creating a cosmic key that allows our heroes and villains to go between worlds, sort of an attempt to replace the cartoon character of Orko, which the special effects department could not pull off due to both budget and technology reasons for the day. John Cipher of Hill Street Blues fame was cast as the loyal man-at-arms, while solid gold dancer turned actress Chelsea Field was cast as Tila. Because we have to have some sort of bumbling bit of comedy relief, character actor and professional angry guy James Tolkien, you might remember him as the principal from the Back to the Future series, he was cast here as Detective Lubick, a cop who gets mixed up in the cosmic battle between good and evil. Of course, we need some fresh faces too. To get the teens on board, I don't really know what teens they were thinking, you know, during this fun, fun children's movie, they got a boring conventional B story arc and they populated it with a young, unknown Courtney Cox and Robert Duncan McNeil, who were brought in to play Julie Winston and her boyfriend, Kevin Corrigan, respectively. Two teenagers who find the missing cosmic key that is crucial to the whole battle for Greyskull. With a main cast in place, things were starting to come together. But like most canon projects, problems mounted rather quickly. Canon didn't, I know you're shocked, fund the film 
properly. In spite of Goddard's very logically mapped out storyboards, Golan and Globus began to hack and slash both at the script and at the funding for the picture. The movie was initially pitched with a budget of $22 million, with Warner Brothers demanding a budget drop. Cannon countered and said, well, don't worry, we'll make the film and we're going to do it on the cheap. We'll make it for $17.5 million. But when they started to put in the special effects and expanded their schedule, the film would eventually come in at the exact same price of $22 million when all was said and done. That said, numerous characters and locations ended up being cut from the film. So suddenly we had She-Ra, King Randor, and the villainous Trapjaw going away in a cost-saving measure, sticking to just a few characters only. Director Goddard found himself run ragged, trying to make nothing about the film look feel or sound like your standard canon movie from the day, attempting instead to deliver a product that would be the best quality that he could make, and he had nothing but trouble for his efforts. Mattel reps didn't like Lundgren. They thought he wasn't muscle-bound enough to play He-Man, not taking into account that, well, if you look at the action figure of He-Man, just the sheer physical impossibility of a human looking like a cartoon character. They also took umbrage that the film had changed many aspects of the cartoon to be reinterpreted for a real live-action film. Why doesn't He-Man have the same outfit as the cartoon? How come Skeletor isn't blue? This isn't right at all! No, no, no. They also complained that the film was considered to be too violent. I mean, Honestly, He-Man's not allowed to kill or injure others with his sword. He's a hero. Instead, they insisted on him battling in alternate ways, which, of course, created the robot-like soldiers that became Skeletor's army, because you can kill a bunch of those without really having to deal with the ramifications. He-Man and his companions would blast away at faceless androids with laser pistols. That solves all problems. Not that Mattel approved of that either, but at this point, who really cared? Others, including the Go-Go Boys, did not appreciate Lundgren's bad English, which caused Sylvester Stallone himself to joke, geez, you gave that guy lines? Mattel was desperate though to gin up interest in their waning toy line sales, so they decided they would hold a national contest through Toys R Us, to have a child win a chance to have a small, non-speaking role in the film. Which, of course, ended up being won by an eight-year-old Richard Sponder of the Chicagoland area. He ended up coming to California for a little over a week to have the wonderful, wonderful role of the pig boy a diminutive, porcine-faced lackey of Skeletor's who ends up presenting him with his Havoc staff before he is told to get out of his sight. A majority of this scene ended up being cut for the theatrical release, but it does exist for the television edit. So, you know, fun. Sponder recalls the experience as being great fun and did note that he had a large amount of makeup and prosthetics that had to be put on, which was sort of a grueling experience for an eight-year-old. But all of that was blunted by the fact that Billy Barty, who also was under heavy prosthetics with the role of Gwildor, would sit with him every single day and tell him stories and comfort him during his time on set, 
which honestly just makes us all love Billy Barty a little bit more. Production was shot in and around Southern California, with a large chunk of the action taking place in Whittier, starting in August and abruptly wrapping in November of 1986. I know, I know, at this point in time, you're going to be shocked to hear that the film had issues. But unlike other canon properties where the production was awkward because the Go-Go Boys were being just a little bit cheap, here production hit some very real snags because the company literally didn't have money in the bank. Multiple times over that period of shooting, director Goddard had to beg the crew to stay on the job and keep shooting because the boys back at Canon had conveniently... Um, <clears throat> misplaced payroll checks for everybody, but in reality, they were just overdrawn and trying to scrape any cash that they could together. No need to applaud Canon here, because it would be Mattel who would step in and put forth the money to pay the crew just to keep the lights on for several times over the course of the shoot. Goddard would stay up all night, setting the street scenes to show Skeletor's forces invading Earth through a portal open from Eternia. And then, that's when Manahan Golan would call him into the office at 8am back to LA to shout at him, complaining that he was killing him, he was ruining the picture, he was spending too much money, dragging them all down, you have to go faster, you have to cut more. And then Goddard, who was exhausted and falling asleep at the time, would simply tell Golan, look, I've been up all night doing shoots. I gotta get back and finish up setting up the set for tonight. And that would cause Manahem to pause, nod, and then as if he had forgotten everything that was just said, he would tell Goddard, Get back to work. Do good tonight. Talk about mixed messages. When they were getting down to the wire, Cannon, in the last week of shooting in November, decided it was just more cost-effective to shut production down completely. Well, easy for them to figure, they were out of cash, and they started sending the cast and crew home. Here's the problem though, Goddard was gearing up to film the last set of scenes, the final battle between He-Man and Skeletor, who, with swords drawn, barbs traded, were standing ready to confront each other with the fate of the known universe at stake. The Go-Go Boys announced that they were happy to just have credits start rolling right after that. We don't need to know who won the sword fight, or even see it. We got the whole rest of the movie. Besides, the audience will get it. Goddard was beside himself, and he had to go back and argue with Golan to free up enough funds to give them a final day of shooting to complete the duel. And eventually, the producer relented, granting a single day to get all of the coverage needed provided that the director himself would give up $75,000, half of what the day would cost, which Goddard, to his credit, did. Working quickly, he put Anthony DeLongas in the Skeletor costume to double for Frank Langella, and that's when he and Lundgren would improvise a sword fight in dim light to make up for the rough conditions that they had to work with. In spite of all of this, and pushback from Mattel, and a stupefying lack of funds, none of that seemed to stop Menahem Golan from walking around Hollywood and shooting his mouth off to anyone who would listen that the film version of Masters of the Universe was going to be the next Star Wars. But honestly, folks, you've been ever so patient if you listen to me through all of this. So how's about I stop my yakin' and we get to that trailer? What do you say?
At the far end of the universe, there is a planet ruled by a being of utter evil. And there is only one man who dares challenge him. They are locked in a battle to the death. A battle that will take them across the heavens. Stop him! A battle that will finally be fought. I want the mother down and brought to me! Across the face. Police! Nobody move! Of Earth. I think I'm gonna need some backup. Can you show us the way? Of course! No! distant galaxy, they have come to Earth. Dolph Lundgren as He-Man, Frank Langella as Skeletor. Only they have the powers to be. Masters of the Universe, live the adventure. After being treated to a lead-in that sets the stage, on the planet of Eternia, the forces of good who protect Castle Greyskull are found to be on the ropes, as Skeletor, as played by Frank Langella, and his army have seized the city and have taken the castle by surprise, imprisoning the good sorceress, as played by Christina Pickles, who resides there, slowly sapping her strength away. He-Man, as played by Dolph Lundgren, hero of the people, ends up leading a small resistant force to try and oppose Skeletor, mounting a plan to rescue the sorceress. But as he regroups his comrades, the Man-at-Arms, as played by John Cipher, and his daughter, Tila, as played by Chelsea Field, Skeletor ends up projecting a message out to the conquered populace. People of Eternia, the war is over. Forces are victorious. The sorceress of Grace Hull is my prisoner, and her powers are now joined with mine. Let this be my first decree. Those who do not pledge themselves to me shall be destroyed. The new age After battling a patrol of Skeletor's army, the group of heroes ends up freeing Gwildor, who's played by Billy Barty, a Thanorian locksmith who is duped into creating what he calls a cosmic key for a client, which turned out to be Evil Lynn, who's played by Meg Foster, Skeletor's agent of evil. Gwildor didn't know that his invention, which allows for portals to be opened for instantaneous travel by way of musical notes, was going to be used as a weapon for evil, and he ends up giving his prototype of the key over to our heroes, allowing them to attempt to mount a rescue of the sorceress and try to get her out of her imprisonment. Everything comes to he who waits. And I have waited... So very long for this moment. Let her go. I don't think so. 
No. While she remains imprisoned within this field, her powers increase my own. And when the moon reaches its zenith, the Great Eye will open, and all the powers of Greyskull will be bestowed upon me! Your wondrous sorceress will die! You dare threaten her life? I dare anything! I am Skeletor! Throw down your weapons! And pledge yourself to me, or you will join her! It's not her you want, it's me. It's always been between us. Silence! It's the locksmith. The little worm has another key! What? No! Kill him! Overwhelmed by Skeletor's forces, the group ends up having to make a hasty retreat through a transdimensional portal that ends up taking them back to 1987 Earth specifically in the suburbs of Los Angeles, where they end up being separated and initially lose the cosmic key. We then swap over to our B story, where two teenagers, Kevin Corrigan, as played by Robert Duncan McNeil, and Julie Winston, as played by Courtney Cox, are preparing to say goodbye to one another. Julie's parents were killed in a plane crash, and she blames herself for their deaths. Wanting to have a fresh start, she is prepared to move to New Jersey to live with her aunt there, and she's packing up her life and preparing to separate from her sad yet understanding musician boyfriend, Kevin. On their last night together, which also happens to be prom where Kevin is playing, they end up finding a cosmic key, and Kevin ends up misidentifying the device as a Japanese synthesizer. Detecting its use when Kevin plays it, Skeletor ends up sending a force of bounty hunters, Beastman, Sorod, Blade, and Karg, as played by Tony Carroll, Ponsmar, Anthony DeLongas, and Robert Towers, respectively, to retrieve the key and capture He-Man alive. While Kevin takes the key to his music store working friend Charlie, as played by Barry Livingston, the hunters end up attacking Julie at the high school, where the prom is going to be held. He-Man arrives, and he sends the hunters running, and removes Julie from the school, which, of course, due to their battle, is now on fire. Kevin returns back to the school to find Julie gone, the school in flames, and an angry detective, Hugh Lubick, is played by James Tolkien, waiting for him with a bunch of questions. They head over to Julie's house to look for her. But frustrated that the evil hunters have failed, Skeletor ends up killing Sorod as a warning to those who would disappoint him, and sends evil Lin and a full battalion back to Earth to find the key. As Lubick and Kevin wait in Julie's home, Kevin tries to stall the detective, which eventually causes the policeman to snap and assume that Kevin has indeed stolen this key, and what's more, is jerking him around. What's a kid like you doing with something like that, huh? Oh, come on, it's my instrument. <laughs> All right, look, let me heat this up, and I'll show you, okay? We're getting interference. They're jamming the signal. Locate the source of the jamming and destroy it. It's difficult, like nothing I've seen before. Destroy it. Now. Whoa! Watch! Watch out! <laughs> the source of interference is destroyed. We have a clear signal from the key. Lock it in. We'll track it from the air. Turkey, sit up. 
Hey, no more crapping around. What is this? I don't know. I got vandalism. I got arson. I got stuff blowing up in my face around here. Now, you better know something. Look, I found it, okay? You found it? You mean you don't know who the owner is? No. Listen, I was going to go put a note down at Charlie's Music Store, all right? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this down to the station. I'm going to put it on the computer. I'm going to check it out, see if it's reported stolen. But for the last time, kid, where'd you find this? Laurelwood Cemetery is in a flower bed. Look, if you don't believe me, go ask Charlie, all right? Go ahead, ask him. Boy, I just may do that. Hey, whoa, you can't just take that. Oh, yeah, you just watch me. And don't worry about your girlfriend, kid. We got an APB out of her. She won't get far. As far as this thing is concerned, don't worry about it. If your story checks out, you'll get it back. If. Lubick leaves with the key, and that's when Evelyn and Skeletor's minions end up attacking Julie's house, torturing Kevin with a submission collar, getting him to tell them where the key is, and heading after Lubick. Julie and He-Man's group arrives to free Kevin, and all of them head over to the music store, where they intercept the key. A pitched battle takes place inside the music shop. During the action, Evil Lynn uses her magic to take on the appearance of Julie's deceased mother, where she convinces the teen to hand the key over. He-Man is briefly able to take the key back from Skeletor's forces, but Skeletor himself arrives with even more men, and he attacks the group personally, the Dark Lord dealing a mortal lightning wound to Julie's leg, where he then demands that He-Man turn himself over, or... He will, in good time, kill the rest of his companions. Anywhere you are, Demon! One more move, and your friends will not live to see another day! You'll be alright. I give you a choice. Return with me to Eternia as my slave, and save their despicable lives, or perish with them on this primitive and tasteless planet. Surrender your sword. Human, no! Tila, I have no choice. This is our fight. I don't want innocent people to die. Well said, He-Man. Take care of it. Good journey. Good journey. He-Man is taken to be a slave in Eternia while his allies are left on Earth. Gwildor has the prototype key still, and with Kevin's help as a musician, he's able to recreate the proper song tones that takes the entire group, including Lubick, back to Eternia to attempt to mount a rescue. Back at Greyskull, Skeletor has been having He-Man whipped and tortured, demanding that the warrior submit to his will, all the while harnessing the power that Greyskull offers. Skeletor eventually finds himself able to draw on the power proper, becoming adorned with gold, and then he ends up pronouncing himself to be a living, cosmic god. People of Eternia! I stand before the great eye of the galaxy, chosen by destiny to receive the powers of Grayskull. 
This inevitable moment will transpire before your eyes, even as He-Man himself bears witness to it. <laughs> I, Skeletor, master of the universe. <laughs> Within me, I am. I am a part of the cosmos. Identity flows, flows through me. Of what consequence are you now? This planet, these people—they are nothing to me. The universe is power. You, unstoppable power. Resistance group invades the castle and ends up routing Skeletor's forces, freeing He-Man in the process. After reclaiming his sword and calling upon the powers of good that emanate from Castle Greyskull, He-Man is able to square off and duel the now godlike Skeletor, ending up breaking his Havoc staff and eventually getting the upper hand against the villain, kicking him into a deep pit below the castle. Eternia now freed, Skeletor's forces are forced to retreat, and Julie is healed from her wounds. While Lubick decides to stay in Eternia and live out his life in retirement, Kevin and Julie are sent back by Gwildor to their own time on Earth. But at the last moment, Julie begs the locksmith to send her back to a time before her parents' accident. Julie ends up waking in her bed, and then comes downstairs to find that her parents are alive and well. But wanting them to stay that way, she ends up stealing their car keys so they can't go on their fateful trip. Running out into the street, she ends up meeting up with Kevin, who confirms that all of it was true. They have left Eternia, and they're now home, with a new future for themselves. As credits roll in a bubbling pit of slime, Skeletor bursts to the surface and angrily addresses the audience that he swears he will return. Okay, where do we even start? Well, truthfully, I have to say this. This is not a movie that I feel deserves the rap that it has earned. First and foremost, it's meant for children. It's based on a toy line and a subsequent cartoon. So both in the day and now, all these folks that keep coming at it with their hot takes, I feel they need to step back and realize it was never intended to be something that we would consider high art. 
where the cinematic masters of the universe fails as a film, it's really with its cheapness, both for not giving fans the adventure in the faraway realm of Eternia, and for canon once again really skimping on the special effects when they happen. The flying hover disc scenes come to mind, where He-Man is sky surfing after Skeletor's minions to stop them and retrieve the cosmic key. Something that, yes, now looks very dated, but it could have still looked decent back in the day. Instead, with their low budget haphazard blue screen techniques, it looks really cheesy even back in 1987. That, and honestly where the film falls flat, is why should audiences who paid good money to see He-Man battle Skeletor get excited at all to watch this strange B-story about two angsty teenagers who have to deal with the fallout of familial death and their relationship issues because of it? Boy howdy, what average 10-year-old doesn't want to see that? I mean, really, it wouldn't be... Let's try that again. I mean, really, it would be like if a modern franchise, here, let's say Marvel, since the comparisons are right. Try that again, third time. I mean, really, it would be like if a modern franchise, let's say Marvel, since the comparisons are rife, decided to make a new Wolverine film, where we decided to spend a good solid 45 to 50 minutes of the plot focusing on the life and relationships of the people who do Logan's taxes. Can you hear the crying children now? I certainly can. But honestly, it's not all gloom and doom. Because let's talk about the good here. There's actually quite a bit of it to be found. First and foremost, what makes this picture, in my humble estimation, Skeletor. Spe Skeletor. Specifically, Frank Langella is amazing. Look some 30 cinematic, not comic book, years, sit down, nerds, I'm one of you, I don't need to hear from you, before Thanos ever entered the scene, you have a villain that thinks so highly of himself that he doesn't understand that his actions are viewed as evil here. Rather, he views his struggle with He-Man as a rather noble endeavor that he needs to get over. In his mind, all that we need to know is that the universe needs his guidance and direction, and he is the only man that can give it. And so, the subjugation of all life is really what he needs to feel fulfilled. And the fate of all the beings... Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. This is awful. Let's start this over. But it's not all gloom and doom. Let's talk about the good that is here, because actually, there's a lot to be found. First and foremost, what makes the picture, at least for me, Skeletor, specifically Langella, is amazing. Look, you got some 31 cinematic, I get it, not comic book years, sit down nerds, I'm one of you, I don't need to hear from you. Anyway, years before Thanos, and here you have a villain that thinks so highly of himself that he doesn't understand that his actions are viewed as evil. Rather, he views his struggle with He-Man as some sort of noble endeavor, because in his mind, all that is known needs to feel his guidance and the direction that only Skeletor can give, and thus his subjugation of all life 
is a fate that beings are entitled to. Nay, they deserve it. And from that angle, Langella chews the scenery as if he's delivering Shakespearean performances, which makes him one of the most interesting characters that happens up on that screen. And we are better for it. Where are they? Where are your friends now? Tell me about the loneliness of good, He-Man. Is it equal to the loneliness of evil? Now, I get it, and I understand it to a point. Lundgren is mocked for his acting abilities, but again, put it in perspective, it's a film that's made for children, and honestly, I think he's fine in this role. Folks like to focus on his lack of finesse, but again, put yourself in his shoes. You're trying to learn how to emote and act in a language that is perhaps your third or fourth language, while you're still working out the kinks on pronunciation. So, for all intents and purposes, give him a pass. He's personifying a good guy, and I think he pulls it off well here. For my money, Billy Barty is actually the other hidden gem that Masters of the Universe gives us. He plays to that little bit of comic relief. I mean, he's the character other people can roll their eyes at and chastise for being silly on screen. Just the sort of cornball humor that children of a certain age all seem to enjoy. But there are actually some truly genuinely funny scenes that he completely sells. Landing on an alien world, one of which he doesn't understand, why wouldn't it make sense that he tries to have a conversation with a cow? Or, as my friend Luke and I love to bring up and joke about, the scene where they stumble across the chicken and rib stand where Julie works. And that sets the table for a bit that I personally find endlessly quotable. Holding out of this, huh? <laughs> Just in time! I was going to share! I was going to share! Sure you were. <laughs> oh. Mmm, good food. Yes, I've never tasted anything like it. Mm. I wonder why they put the food on these little white sticks. Those are rib bones. <laughs> you mean this used to be an animal? Mm-hmm. Oh. <sighs> what a barbaric world. Never think while you're hungry. I think we've wasted enough time. We better get back to our sectors. Wildor? It tasted good. Wildor? Oh, I'm going, I'm going! But you know, I'm a reasonable person, and I understand. Not everyone feels the same way as I do about this film. But that's okay. Because that's exactly why we have such a thing as the sidecar. Welcome to the sidecar, y'all. It's so fucking here. Welcome to the sidecar, all. We got what you wanna hear. Yep, yep. Welcome to the sidecar, y'all. It's so fucking here. Welcome to the sidecar, all. Yep, yep.
And joining us today in the sidecar is the always great disinformation Dan himself, Dan Felton, the current host of the Fucking A podcast and the former host of the Assorted Goods podcast. Dan was kind enough to share his thoughts about this film, so I'll just shut up and without further ado say, Hey Dan, what do you have going for us today? Hey, Chris, it's good to be back at the Linden Street Cinema for another look at a classic film. Thank you for having me back on the pod. And this time around, it's a dive into the 1987 box office flop turned cult classic Masters of the Universe, a film I would begin by describing as a big old pile of cheese with an almost nostalgic level of 1980s special effects and aesthetic. Now, first off, I'd never seen this film before. And I've never really seen anything of the Masters of the Universe series in my life. So maybe I come into this with an unbiased eye and an open mind to give it a chance, ready and willing to be entertained. And of all the movies I've seen in my life, this was definitely one of them. Looking into the background of the franchise, I find out that the whole Masters of the Universe saga was birthed from the Mattel toy company missing out on acquiring the rights to the Star Wars figurine line and being in desperate need of a new big idea, decided to come up with this. Hey, who says creativity is hard? Now, the hero of our story, He-Man himself, played by the villain of Rocky IV, Dolph Lundgren, I must break you. Well, he goes from the role of the breaker to the breakee in this film. And look, the man clearly has the physique for the job, but that's pretty much about it. Putting it bluntly, Lundgren is not very good in Masters of the Universe. It was mere minutes into the film that I was already cracking up at his acting and his line delivery, which doesn't improve over the course of the film. Honestly, watching Ivan Drago try to be a good guy superhero was a bit of a disaster that I just had to ironically enjoy, like watching videos of kids falling over on the internet. He-Man meets his whole crew for the film pretty quickly after his first fight the aptly named Man-at-Arms, and his apparent daughter, Tila, along with the amazingly annoying Gwildor, who appears to be the universe's most talented engineer and part-time synthesizer player. Although actor Billy Barty, who played Gwildor, had an interesting career as an activist fighting for the rights and respect of little people, just as a side note. But at this point, the premise of the film is revealed. Gwildor has created the cosmic key, capable of transporting people anywhere in the universe, would be pretty handy when I don't want to walk to work in the morning, actually. And then there's a central villain of our story, Skeletor, who wants that key so he can cement his newly taken power over the planet of Eternia and become, well, the master of the universe. Now, film critiques aside, I have to laugh at the straight-to-the-point and almost eye-rollingly on-the-nose names of everything in this franchise, a planet called Eternia a hero with the weirdly redundant name of He-Man, a trusted sidekick with the name-slash-job title of Man-at-Arms, a villain with the name of Skeletor, and the villain's right hand with the amazing name of Evil Lynn. It's also painfully market-tested. But then at the same time, it got me thinking, are names like Skywalker and Darth Vader really that different? But I'll just leave that there. Now, the production values are classic for the time the movie was made. Costumes and villain makeup everywhere. Bad guys with crazy prosthetics that look pretty hilarious in the context of our modern anything-go style of CGI. 
Castle Grayskull is an elaborate setting that gets used for numerous scenes in the film, but the big setting change occurs when the party of heroes teleports to a mysterious planet filled with weird haircuts and pork ribs called Earth. Now, the back-and-forth chase for the cosmic key takes place in this stereotypical slice of 1980s small-town Americana, where two teenagers, Julie, played by a very early-in-her-career Courtney Cox, and her musically talented boyfriend Kevin, discover the suddenly lost key and begin to be pursued around town by the minions of Skeletor and Evil Lynn. A high school burns down, a music shop becomes a battleground, and more incredibly bad fight scenes take place with Dolph He-Man Lundgren performing action choreography that makes me think he should have stuck with boxing movies only. Oh, and don't forget all the laser zaps from one of cinema's greatest tropes, henchmen with bad aim. Now, watching the action and destruction-filled plot unfold along a seemingly unpopulated small-town main street, except for seemingly one cop and one music store clerk, made me understand a little more the modern trend of trying to recapture this 1980s aesthetic in productions like Stranger Things. As much as Masters of the Universe is ridiculously cheesy and maybe might deserve a Razzie nomination or two, it's got that so-bad-it's-good kind of enjoyment to it which is why it likely falls into the category of cult classic at this point. Which is a good thing, I suppose, considering it made only $17 million compared to its $22 million budget. See, they spent a little too much on all those missed laser shots by the bad guys. In terms of the plot, it's mostly a shrug of those painfully awkward fight scenes, which include so many weird quick cuts of Lundgren's awkward fight faces and the hot potato of the cosmic key, which gets stolen back by the baddies when Evil Lynn impersonates Julie's dead mother and convinces her, pretty easily might I say, that she's in fact alive and working on a secret project that requires, coincidentally, that key. <laughs> Even better though is He-Man's almost effortless recovery of the key moments later by simply performing a grappling hook drive-by and snatching the key back from Evil Lynn, who's got some serious butterfingers there. I mean, come on, you gotta hold on to the football. Secure the rock. Now you know, you win some, you lose some. So it goes. One of the few highlights of the film is Frank Langella's portrayal of the villain Skeletor. He's theatrical, menacing, and charming as a bad guy. Despite the weird mask he's wearing, which seems to be part skeleton face, and then also like part cloth mask, Seriously, there was something about his nose that looked like the most budget part of the whole film. But Langella has a good reason to make the effort, as he apparently took the role because his young son was a big fan of the franchise. So, you know, he was putting some heart into this. Look, in the end, the heroes prevail, the teenagers get a happy ending, and the tough guy cop side character apparently retires as royalty on Eternia? Good for him? Anyways, Masters of the Universe's textbook camp. And again... That's probably why it holds up in the context of when it was made. And, of course, that sweet, sweet 80s nostalgia. Oh, it never gets old, apparently. Overall, I knew pretty quick that this was not the apex of quality film. But for its pure entertaining corniness, Masters of the Universe is not the absolute worst way to pass about 100 minutes of your life. But man, Dolph Lundgren, what a mess. Uh-oh, better be careful. No, no, Dolph. No, I didn't mean it. I must break you. All right, now comes the part where I use this guest spot to plug my own pinnacles of creativity. If you want to laugh, different than the kinds of laughs you might get watching Masters of the Universe, of course, 
pop on an episode of fucking A. That's F-U-C-K-I-N-E-H, a weekly comedy podcast where my good friend Matt and I navigate some of the crazy and strange stories from our news, culture, and the world around us. New episodes drop every Friday on your podcast platform of choice. So check it out, have a laugh, and join us for the crazy ride that is life on Earth. And coming this October, a new podcast. Oh, that's right. Another podcast. Hard no. Examining the ways we love to lie and be lied to. Cons, scams, misinformation, and the money, history, and people behind it all. The first trailer is going to be dropping this upcoming week. So subscribe and let this great new show drop right into your podcast feed when it launches. Thank you again to Chris and the Linden Street Cinema for having me back on the show. Until next time. And, oh, right, of course. I have the power. First and foremost, thank you, Dan. I love the fact that Dan got to see this film for the first time, and he got to experience it as what it should have been, the cheesy, fun offering that people should approach it as. I do think it's interesting that he has a different take on Lundgren and just how rough the performance was, and not because I think he's wrong. Everyone's entitled to an opinion, and they don't have to share mine. But I do think it's interesting because of how people from different generations evaluate what is being offered to them in the medium for the day. Lundgren, when you look at him now, he speaks perfect English, and he's made numerous films. So I think it's really interesting and easy to see how new viewers can look back and marvel just on how rough they thought his performance was. And you know what? I completely respect that. I also love that Dan honed in on the cult classic aesthetic that the film has, particularly Langella's awesomeness, as well as the goofy ending that is offered up to Detective Lubitsch. Either way, Dan, thank you so much. That was amazing as always, and I appreciate it. So I can hear you out there. Chris, how was the film received? Well, not really great by critical standards. Masters of the Universe was released to mixed reviews at best when it made its debut on August 7, 1987. Walter Goodman of the New York Times was pretty neutral with his assessment, stating that He-Man and his allies, the Man-at-Arms, and Tila, whose close-fitting battle suit reveals almost as much as He-Man's, find themselves in Colby, California, where they get involved with a couple of teenagers and they're pursued by Skeletor's minions and a local cop. If you like the toy, you're gonna love the movie. Yeah, that was probably the most glowing review. Variety's Cam was pretty dismissive of the film, noting that all the elements are of epic proportions in this Conan-Star Wars hybrid ripoff based on a best-selling line of children's toys. The epitome of good takes on the epitome of evil for nothing less than the future of the universe, and the result is a colossal bore. The tedium will be lost on a 5-9 to year old, but Masters fans will flock to see this anyway. Although they did mention that the makeup and costuming were good for the film, even that was sullied by a job that was uninspiring by its special effects. In the end, though, I have to say it wouldn't matter. 
because the target audience of the 8 to 10 year olds who were lining up to see it weren't reading or taking in what critics had to say about He-Man. Rather, they were the ones who were deciding if canon had done a decent enough job or not bringing a live action version of their beloved character to the big screen, and the verdict was unfortunately in. Masters of the Universe was not what was expected. I'll say this, in this case it wasn't all just canon, although they were still, you know, owning their decision. You see, Mattel as a franchise was growing stale and was running on fumes during the day, so making a film on a property that had been on the decline for a number of years, it really shouldn't have come to anyone's surprise that the picture was fighting an uphill battle from the beginning. Opening up against films like Stakeout and Back to the Beach, Masters of the Universe found itself in a distant third on its opening weekend, losing out to Timothy Dalton with his outing as James Bond in The Living Daylights, holding the number one position for the second week in a row at the box office. Audiences then went to go see Dreyfus and Estevez play cops in Stakeout rather than going to see Masters of the Universe. Masters of the Universe would go on to earn only $17.3 million against its initial $22 million budget, a great loss to canon. As a film, of course, it gained new life as a cult rental, becoming a go-to option for many a millennial film viewer, including myself. But the damage was truly done. Lundgren's He-Man would not be the face of the franchise that would save the struggling studio and the Go-Go Boys from their bad decision-making. Oh, they had big plans. I mean, really, before the film even dropped, they had a sequel in the works, and they were quickly going to downgrade that and retool it to be a standalone picture that would end up being set in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, turning into the film we all know and love as Cyborg, starring a young Jean-Claude Van Damme. As 1987 drew to a close, Cannon was left reeling, contending with the grim reality that they were going to be forced to abide by debt covenants that would kick in if the company's equity dropped below $37.5 million for more than two consecutive quarters. Cannon had just squeaked by previously with $39.9 million, but now the summer of 87 was ending, facts were facts, and they were officially in the red. As Cannon readied to start what was considered to be a celebration of their first decade in Hollywood, the Go-Go Boys were forced to put on a good face and pretend that all was well. While industry colleagues congratulated them for withstanding a storm, behind the scenes they were all being forced to make some really rough financial decisions that would go on to decimate the company itself. But that is going to be a story for next week when we focus on one of the last long-standing films that the studio released before imploding. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe as a property had peaked, and in spite of an attempt in the late 1990s and then again another one in the early aughts, it seemed that Mattel had shot its shot. But time and nostalgia have a way of making things appear rosy. And now, with seeing 2021 showing the launch of Netflix bringing back a new series, Masters of the Universe Revelation, and another generation rediscovering the film on its 35th anniversary, 
It's no surprise that we've recently seen a new announcement that He-Man will once again be making his way to the big screen, with a rebooted film slated tentatively for 2023, and a new lineup of retro toys being reintroduced into stores for aging nerds like myself, having a chance to buy back parts of their childhood, now considered long past. Look, I'm not going to tell you that Masters of the Universe is going to change your life, but I will tell you this, you could do a hell of a lot worse than sitting down and watching the adventures of He-Man take place on the screen in front of you. The version of Masters of the Universe screened here at the LSCE was the 2012-25th anniversary Blu-ray edition, which comes with audio commentary from director Gary Goddard, as well as the original theatrical trailer for the film itself. All of that can be yours currently on Amazon.com for the princely sum of $13.79, which we would tell you is well worth your time. But if you do feel that's too rich for your blood, the same product can be yours on DVD for $8.69, which we would again say that's nothing to sneeze at. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where you should purchase your films from. We just feel in this day and age that purchasing physical media is ever so important as it lets these fine companies know who own the rights to this content that we all know and love to keep releasing it to us so that at the end of the day, we get to have what we want. And really, isn't that what matters, getting more of what you know and love? Besides, Masters of the Universe is such an interesting little time capsule of a film full of fun and hope and, well, in reality, modern cheesiness is such an asset rather than such a hindrance. So all that said, what are you waiting for? You need to get out there and get yourself a copy of Masters of the Universe today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We do hope you'll come back next week as we start to wrap up this summer that has been some of our favorite canon titles that they've brought us over the years. I'd like to give a special thank you to Dan Felton, that's Disinformation Dan to all of you Twitter users out there, for his generous contribution to this podcast. If you like his stylings, and let's face it, you should, please check out both the Fucking A podcast as well as the Assorted Good podcast, and you will obviously be better off for having done so. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please swing by and check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've also recently been added to Stitcher, so you can find us there and give us a spin if you like. I'm also proud to say that we're on Amazon Music, so if you have an account there, you can simply say out loud, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on both 
Good Pods, and on Podchaser. Both of those are podcast databases for listeners and creators alike. You can find us there, give us a follow and a review if you please, and hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we're a part of to give us a boost in the old rankings. You see, the more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms and that makes us more searchable. And then we can share more of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? <laughs> of course you do! Do you have a question for us? Any comments? Any movies you want us to cover? Anything you thought I got wrong? Well, we would love to hear from you. Please, send us an email or an audio clip to lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. Do you love social media? You can give us a shout out. We use it here. You can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP, or you can find us on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. We're also on Facebook at Linden Street Cinema Experience. If you'd like to be even more personable or you wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please feel free. Send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, take care out there. Wash your hands. Wear a mask if you feel like it. But most importantly, please stay healthy and well. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.